Grassroots, True Grit. This is Shenango Voice. Visit our website at shenangovoice.com, and if you enjoy our programming, share a link to our podcast with your friends. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant, with dine-in service available Monday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Also continuing the Doshirak subscription dinner program, the convenient prepared meal program ready for weekly pickup or delivery. For more information, visit the website at twobakeriesinarestaurant.com or call 607-334-9480. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shenango Voice, a local public service podcast. Our mission is to inform, connect, and inspire Shenango County, New York, with information and stories that bring out the best in our community. In part one of this two-part series, retired two-star general Peter Lennon looks back on a 39-year military career that took him around the world and back home again to his roots in New Berlin. This interview was conducted on March 9th, 2021 by Shenango Voice producers Diane Gallo and Mibby Kim. This is Diane Gallo and Mibby Kim with Shenango Voice. Peter, you grew up here, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about when and where in the county you grew up. Just give us a little background on that. I grew up just outside of New Berlin, on the other side of the Unadilla River, uh, over in uh, over in Pittsfield, which is just uh, over in Otsego County. I can look out my window here and, and see... Uh, Otsego County, and I can see, practically see the house that I grew up in. My family has lived in this area since the 1880s. I went to number, the old New Berlin uh, Central School uh, from kindergarten all the way on up to 12th grade. That is now uh, Milford Academy, the, uh, the prep school uh, for athletes. Uh, and New Berlin has transformed to uh, Unadilla Valley. When I came home, uh, I ran into some folks that I had known uh, all those years, uh, and someone said, Pete, we haven't seen you in a while. It's <laughs> <laughs> been a few decades. Uh, uh, I, I stayed here when, uh, in the summers when I went to college, uh, so essentially this was home uh, until I entered the Army. and. Uh, uh, I came home as often as I could because my family was still here, and I really enjoyed uh, coming home. And it was almost like the uh, the pressure was a little bit different here. My, my shoulders threw back a little bit. My head was up. I, I, I could breathe. I, I just it it was nice. This was this was home. And uh, and I, I tell folks these folks here, the Nebraskanites and and the folks of Shenango County. They're the kids that I grew, uh, rode the school bus with. It's just now that they've got gray hair and, and grandchildren, but uh, they're, they're my friends and as well as my neighbors. So it, uh, it, it it's great to be home. Apparently, they still recognize you. Must not have changed much. I, I guess it's a, a family trait. Uh, I come from good genes, I guess. When did you leave to go to school? I graduated in 1972. And 
uh, went away to uh, Bucknell University. I had been offered a uh, Army ROTC scholarship uh, at that point, and I studied uh, civil engineering. I received both a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering uh, in 1977. Uh, it was a dual degree. And, you know, people wouldn't think about a Bachelor of Arts in Civil Engineering. That uh, ties in more of the political side, the uh, urban planning side, the economics piece of it, as opposed to the hard design piece of Civil Engineering. You have the background in the sciences, but you also kind of bleed that into uh, governmental issues. Um, so that, that's, that's what I really enjoy, taking that, that design or that project and selling it to a community or working through the community to get the proper design for, uh, for the project. Peter, could you give us an example of a project like that? I guess maybe a, uh, a water project or a, a sewage project, trying to get uh, the community uh, to buy in and, and uh, work toward a grant or, or some federally funded uh, uh, program, whether it be uh, wastewater or uh, uh, electrification. I, I'm just learning about the, the, some of the broadband issues that we've got here. And it's, it's one of those things where we've got to be able to communicate uh, effectively and be able to turn that need for broadband into something that everybody recognizes that is gonna take us forward. Uh, and, and how do you do that? I'm not one to design, I, I couldn't tell you what uh, X number of megabits per second really translates into, but I can tell you that without broadband uh, capability here within Shenango County, we're going to be considered uh, an also ram. And, and I worry about that. Not that we have to be cutting edge, but I think we have opportunities to uh, move forward and any infrastructure projects that we have have got to consider um, the broadband. When I was in the later years of, of uh, transportation, we used to say, we move people, we move cargo, we're in the business of moving data as well. You just opened up a whole um, world here, talking about the infrastructure because our communities are ready for infrastructure overhauls. Water systems are 100, they, they were all installed at the same time. So all of the town water systems are pretty much coming up for reevaluation. All of the non-glamorous stuff that people don't want to think about, which we will ride forward into the future on, are these infrastructure issues of electricity, grids, water flow, broadband connections and communications, that's all our future well-being is embedded in that invisible infrastructure. Now I'm starting to understand, you know, where, where the glamour is here and the shine is. So, so thank you. I look at up in the Mohawk Valley, uh, you've got towns like Herkimer, Elian, Frankfurt, uh, Little Falls, all, all the way along that stretch east of Utica. Many of those towns have had pretty serious uh, water infrastructure problems. And it's water main break after break uh, over the last few years. And I think they realize that they can't continue to put Band-Aids on it. And it's one of those things, like you said, it, it's not glamorous. Uh, I equate it kind of to uh, uh, doing drills if you're an athlete. 
you go in and you run sprints or you do a, a dribbling drill in basketball again and again and again. Uh, nobody really uh, comes to watch your practice. But if you don't do it, you look terrible when you play. So we've got to be able to have that infrastructure backbone, whether it be water, electrification, IT, whatever it is, uh, is, is so necessary for the future. After you went to school, you got your education with in the Army? Were you in the Army at the time? I actually uh, graduated on a Sunday and was commissioned that, that, that same weekend. That's the way they worked the ROTC program. Mm -hmm. And uh, the following Wednesday, I was on my way down to Fort Benning, Georgia to uh, go to uh, uh, paratrooper training. But not a whole lot of a summer break that year. No dust settling on Peter. <laughs> That was a, a, a very interesting time. I was uh, headed to, uh, at that point, West Germany, and the, uh, the Cold War was still going on. And uh, things were pretty rough and tumble. The Army itself was transitioning uh, to an all-volunteer force, and there were some pluses and minuses in that. You had folks who had the experience of being Vietnam vets, and then you have others that... Uh, uh, it has stayed on, frankly, beyond their, their point of uh, being valuable contributors. But it was a morphing of, uh, of, of the Army uh, into the uh, all-volunteer all force. And uh, over the years, I, I think we've gotten better and better and better. They, they asked me about reinstating the draft. I would not be supportive of that. I think that volunteer or mandatory service for uh, a year or so would be is, is a good thing but not everybody's cut out for the army uh, or, or the military and i think that it doesn't hurt someone to, to do this to to learn that a six o'clock start in the morning means six o'clock not six twenty and uh, learning how to say yes, sir, and, and, uh, and no, ma'am, periodically does not hurt either. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that uh, that type of uh, orientation and perhaps even uh, teaching someone a basic skill that they would not have picked up in, in high school is not a bad thing. But it does not need to be uh, fit into a military construct because the military, you want to have people there who want to be in the military, not who are being told to be in the military. And otherwise, you wind up with uh, two people making sure that the third person uh, pulls his weight. And that's, that's not, uh, not productive. Your, your design is to create a, an effective force. I remember when the, the Berlin Wall came down and the sense of, you know, just jubilation that there was. Were you there in that time? I had already returned uh, at that point. Uh, was on, on assignment in the uh, in the United States, but in the in the late seventies and early eighties, uh, there was uh, definitely a threat. Uh, we 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 truly believed on a couple occasions that the the Russian horde was going to be storming across the uh, uh, either the East German or the Czechoslovakian border into what we know is uh, at that point is West Germany, and uh, we would be placed on alert uh, just to test our systems and make sure that uh, uh, we could get to the border quickly. And it was, it was a matter of, uh, of improving your proficiency, but it was also a show of force. Uh, 
kind kind of a forced deterrent operation operation to to let people know that they hey we are ready uh, don't don't think that you can just waltz across the border. Mm-hmm. And we would go up uh, and and test the sites out. And it was very interesting because as the further we, uh, east you went, you could see the difference in the economy and essentially the societal mindset of people who were on the border. Uh, that they didn't have the 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 sparkle in their eyes. They were almost uh, I don't want to say hopeless, but they were not as inspired and, and hopeful for the future. And that to me showed that the that Russian experiment uh, was was a failed experiment. This is still playing out in my own country today. Um, what you witnessed. Um, Decades ago. In South Korea. Yes, in Korea, North Korea and South Korea. And, the, um, you know, we really depend on the presence of the American military still because we are threatened all the time. And it's not something that's distant for me. It's like right there. I can't imagine the perspective that you have on this. It, it really is, is a valuable perspective to have and to share with people. You know, I, I get a little concerned when we talk about endless wars. Uh, well, we've been in Germany for all these years. We never thought of that as an endless war after, after a certain period of time. We've been in Korea for uh, almost 70 years. Uh, and... That is not an endless war. We're a stabilizing force. And, and I think that we, we go in and we think that uh, we're going to get in and get out and not have some sort of uh, uh, stabilizing. Uh, and I don't want to say rebuilding. We're not in the business of rebuilding, but uh, uh, we are in the, in the business of allowing a wounded country of uh, 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 economically, infrastructure-wise, and perhaps even psychologically, allow them to heal in response to the uh, uh, the, the horrors of what they've been through and the horrors of the conflict itself. We don't need a, a significant fighting force at this point in in Afghanistan. We need a stabilizing force, and that's what we have. We have stabilizing and training brigades so the uh, Afghan pe- uh, people can can continue to work toward being able to defend themselves, but they also need to have the expertise that we tend to bring that no one else has uh, on par with us uh, in any of our other militaries, whether it be medical or logistics. We say that the logistics guys and the medical guys are the first ones in and the last ones out. And it's not a bad thing to have that, to be able to allow that, because it, I think it allows the rest of that fighting force to, to mature and be able to defend itself and give some credibility to the government that they are uh, trying to support and, uh, and sustain. I also want to want to express, I don't know what the correct word is, um, the fortunate circumstance of my father having met you before he passed away. He was a wartime commander, and he's lived what you're describing all of his life. And I was able to connect my dad to you before he passed away. Well, it, it was an honor to meet him. It, it, it really was. And uh, your book, I, I just flew through it. Uh, uh, and it just, it, it hit so many points for me. And to think, it, ma- it made me feel humble. 
to think of what you uh, and your family have gone through and all all the great things that that you bring back. You know, I I wish we could call you a native, and then we do a re, uh, return of the native uh, because it uh, you 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 and your family have brought something special to this community, and and I and I hope that we're able to find a way to share. Before we go on, maybe I'm wondering if you would do a, a light sketch of your father, the, the the experience that you're referencing, because I think this will leave listeners kind of floating as to what that is. I think it's valuable to put that here now. My dad was born during the Japanese occupation of Korea and the World War II brought that to an end, at which point... Um, I think the whole country was pretty much in chaos. And he must have been like late teens or early 20s when this all happened. And they were recruiting people to just kind of like construct a new country again, basically. And he uh, somehow opted to join the first naval officer class, or I, I don't remember all the details, but between 45 and 1950, when the Korean War broke out, I think he was trying to figure out how to really construct a country from nothing again. And for three years, I think the war went on. He ultimately uh, became the liaison officer between the American forces and the Korean military. Um, so he was um, in charge of... Um, I don't know the military terminology, uh, where they track all the movement of um, the troops through like decoding their you know, signals and everything like that, whatever. It was Morse code days, I think, in, at that time. And he actually had a uh, unit under his command, I remember, that just dedicated um, all 24 hours on everything they could intercept and they could track what was going on where with the uh, North Koreans, the Russians, the Chinese, whoever were helping the North Koreans and then sharing this um, information with Americans and then Korean military. So he actually did a lot during those years. I'd like to put a bookmark here and say that this conversation at this moment could go in like this lovely splay of directions, but we want to kind of turn the, the lens back onto your story, Peter. After Germany, you're back in the States. You're you're kind of moving through. I see Honduras here, so we kind of pick up your thread where you want to, Peter. Okay. Well, I, I had a uh, a command uh, of, of about 200 soldiers uh, out at Fort Carson and. Uh, uh, had some special projects out there, but at that point I was starting to get uh, a little anxious and there were a couple uh, civilian opportunities that I wanted to pursue. So I transitioned on over to the Army Reserve uh, at that point in the middle of the uh, 1980s. I worked high tech for a couple of years uh, in Colorado Springs. The high tech uh, world was booming out there at that point and then moved back to Virginia to work at, at a at a government job working for the army, uh, reviewing the war plans. And basically what we did was we made sure that you could deploy the force in time to 
become a defensive force uh, in the event of, uh, uh, of, aggre uh, of aggression. Uh, if in fact uh, there was going to be a border incursion, whether it be in the Middle East, uh, in, in Europe or in, uh, in Korea, could we get the American forces that were stationed in the United States and in Europe uh, into a defensive uh, posture so that they could hold the force and then uh, ultimately uh, uh, defeat the enemy? And people tend to think that the war starts and everything's there. It, it's not. Uh, it's, it's here in the United States or it's in Europe. There was an old there was an old saying that uh, we're going to have uh, ten divisions, which is probably equivalent to, uh, with all the reinforcements and everything like that, somewhere in the area of two hundred and some odd thousand soldiers uh, uh, in uh, in Europe in ten days. Well, some of those were pre-stationed in Europe, but being able to figure out how do you get the rest of those forces there in a ten-day period or shortly thereafter uh, is quite a challenge. So you've got to try to figure out how do you work through the seaports. How do you work uh, the the rail the railroads um, because you're traveling in civilian railroads? How do how do you work to be able to tie in the military railroad on the, on the military installation into the civilian railroad? How do you uh, uh, get enough planes? How do you do all this other stuff? And what infrastructure again? Back to the infrastructure idea. What infrastructure changes needed to be made uh, to be able to flow that force in the time that it takes? You think of some of these absolutely huge ships that are the size of an aircraft carrier or bigger uh, that are carrying their, their essentially uh, multi-level parking garages, uh, floating parking garages. And you've got to try to figure out how do you load them uh, efficiently and, and download them uh, efficiently so that you can quickly uh, get to the point of, uh, point of employment. So that's, that's the sort of thing that I was doing on the civilian side. What I'm thinking as you're talking is that it's almost an example of trying to get the vaccination uh, process up and running and, and building the infrastructure and all of that. Like once it's built and the connections are there, you can have a nice flow and make it move very smoothly. But boy, it's been kind of messy getting up on its little feet and wobbling forward. So it's a nice uh, parallel. You're right, uh, and there's uh, an infrastructure side to this, and there's also a human side. I'm a big fan of uh, uh, centralized planning, but decentralized operations. How do you let the local folks be able to figure out what works best for them? How do you how do you let a barrels, for example, uh, be as efficient as they as they can be, uh, given uh, the operation that they already have in place? What assistance do they need? Uh, and what guidance do they need so that they're in sync with everybody else? How tightly do you write the rule book so that they can operate within, so that they're not doing something in conflict with uh, another vaccination uh, site? Uh, one of the issues that we were talking about not too long ago was, well, gee, uh, do you let everybody in uh, or do you restrict it to, to uh, Shenango uh, County residents as far as a priority? And, and, and you don't want to be harsh, but if, in fact, you limit uh, certain uh, populations initially as far as uh, in your prioritization process, then you have databases that you can work with. But if it becomes a free-for-all and you have people coming in from outside, then that, that database, say, for example, in the Office of the Aging, uh, right. uh, that team could be able to sort, hey, we're 60% uh, through our... Uh, our 70 plus 
uh, population or something like that. But if you open it up to everything, that database becomes worthless. It, so it's about bound rules and you know establishing lines of flow and movement and data tracking. Right, and 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 I think that it's you need just enough to be able to empower and, and to create a vehicle for communication across the operational entities. So they feel like, hey, I, I'm in charge here, but I have a good network that I can flow information and needs to. To put it in a football team simile, you want to know what the person to your left and your right is doing. You don't have to do exactly the same thing, but you, know, you need to know how what they're doing impacts you and how you, what you're doing impacts them. And, and what is the overall game plan that, uh, that you're trying to execute? So it, it is, it is a, a logistics issue um, um, that uh, is, is very challenging. It seems like it just keeps going back to um, discussion rather than debate and cooperation rather than competition. So now you're getting to the point in your career that you are the deputy commander for training and support of the Army Reserve's 200,000 soldiers. Right, uh, that was uh, my, my last assignment. I had finished my last command, which was, uh, at that point, I was, I was very lucky to be selected to, be, to command the largest uh, two-star force uh, in the military. Uh, we had 37,000 soldiers uh, scattered across the country. And that was just, it was a fun command, uh, but you can't be in command for all your career. And uh, so I got moved into a, the senior staff position as uh, the head of uh, uh, training, the training elements, and also all the support elements across the country in supporting the, the uh, Army Reserve nationwide. Uh, living on uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which was a first experience for my wife living on post. So it was uh, quite an adjustment for her, but I think she, uh, she thrived. Do you by any chance have any idea how many times you've moved? <laughs> no, I can tell. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it will not be a test. <laughs> well, the good thing was uh, in my last few years, even though I was pretty much active duty up until the Fort Bragg stints, I was able to keep my home of record in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, from uh, most of the most of the '90s and uh, uh, into the early 2000s, uh, aside from a few of those pesky deployments to the Middle East, but that was still where the uh, that was where the bills came anyway. So now you are at the end of a 39-year career, and you're looking for well, <laughs> your forever home. <laughs> It was interesting. I was traveling so much uh, the last few years that I would wake up uh, in the morning and try to figure out where I was. And every once in a while, I'd recognize the furniture. And I and I say, I must be home. The airline pilots were telling me that I was flying more than they were. <laughs> wow. Um. But, but it was a very rewarding career. Here's this dirt road boy. Uh, from uh, from Navarro, New York, uh, operating at the level uh, that, that I was entrusted to be at uh, with uh, uh, the Afghans, the former Soviet uh, leadership, uh, Pakistani leadership, Iraqis, uh, just just opportunities that you would not imagine that, that you would have. And uh, 
I, I'm very, very thankful for that. Did you know you would always be coming back to the county or how did that happen? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I always enjoyed coming back. I came back probably once or twice a year. Always uh, had, had uh, great, uh, great business with my dad and with my folks. Uh, but uh, never really thought about where, where home was going to be. As I said, I spent a lot of time in Virginia, a little bit of time in Colorado. The, uh, the rest of the time, I was kind of a uh, traveling soul. So the traveling soul returns home to the source and you end up in New Berlin again. Yes. That concludes this episode of Shenango Voice. We hope you enjoyed our program. Please subscribe using your favorite podcast application so that you can be notified when our next episode is published. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant with dine-in service available Monday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Also continuing the Doshirak subscription dinner program, the convenient prepared meal program ready for weekly pickup or delivery. For more information, visit the website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 607-334-9480. Thank you for listening.